Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andrew Lucian. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are officially back with season two of the Civil War Center podcast, publishing and everything else. Um, I had to step away for a little bit due to some life events, all positive ones, Um, but I took a break from the podcast for a little bit, but we are back in full swing. This is an episode with Dr. Lloyd Klein. If you're familiar with the Civil War Center website, you know him from his articles he has contributed. Dr. Lloyd Klein is a clinical professor of medicine in the cardiology division of the University of California. Um, he's an accomplished consultant, author, lecturer, and investigator. He is now a published Civil War author. Uh, we talk about his book in this interview. He is also an amateur and now professional historian who has read extensively on the Civil War and has published extensively as well, as I mentioned. Uh, Dr. Klein and I sat down to talk about his book, which is now out, and I will put a link in the show notes and make sure to pick it up. So here's my conversation with Dr. Klein, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, hello, everybody. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Lloyd Klein. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. This is uh, a new way to meet. We've emailed a lot and messaged a lot. (laughs) Very true. Uh, It's good to put a face on the name. Yeah, uh, Dr. Klein is one of our contributors at the Civil War Center. He has done quite a bit of work for us, uh, some fantastic articles, and he does a lot of Civil War uh, research and writing. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners, uh, tell them a bit about yourself and your interest in the Civil War. Well, I'm a uh, professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco. I'm a cardiologist. Um, I spent most of my career being an interventional cardiologist, which is uh, the type of physician that puts in coronary stents and does other kind of technical procedures on the heart. Um, I've been interested in the Civil War as a secondary interest, I think since I was age 10. When I was uh, 10, my parents took us on a vacation um, through Pennsylvania and we stopped off at Gettysburg. And that was really the initial contact I really had with something like that. And it was completely fascinating. And over the years, I've read an awful lot of Civil War books and I thought it was interesting and um, something I kept up on, obviously. Uh, as a physician, that was my primary interest and always has been. Um, I do uh, have written a great deal on uh, and written books in cardiology. Um, <clears throat> and then several years ago, I semi-retired and thought I would take up again my some of my other outside interests, and the Civil War was one of them. And um, so I began especially as COVID started and I had nothing to do, (laughs) I began to write on Facebook daily quizzes, which I would put on in the morning and I called it a coffee cup challenge, just as a way to focus my own reading and interest. Mm -hmm. And as you know, uh, it's become one of the more popular things on Facebook. uh, And, uh, which has been really gratifying to me. Mm-hmm. I get that. That's kind of a, that was what started the podcast and blog and everything for me too. It was just trying to help myself learn. I feel like, because you, it's one thing to read it and then you go to bed and the next day you forget a lot of the details of that battle. One of the things in, in cardiology and in medicine, which is very common is as you're teaching, you will turn to the person that you're training as you're doing a procedure or just after seeing a patient and you'll throw a question out to them. And the idea of it is to teach. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've learned is, is that somebody can talk on and on and on and drone on and on and you turn it off. But if somebody asks you a question that you don't know, and then they tell you what it is you don't know, 
that's a spectacular teaching tool. If it's done correctly, if it's not done to denigrate the person, but as a way of lifting up and, and imparting facts, it's a great solution to all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's really the basis of the coffee cup challenge. I'm just basically taking what I did for 35 years teaching in medical schools and residents and fellows and just applying it to the Civil War. And it has been very effective. People love it. And for listeners who may not be familiar, are do these questions come from what you're studying at the moment then, I presume? Yes. <clears throat> I mean, I like reading. Um like most people to um, just plow through a 300 or 500 page book of uh, who's fighting what, and which uh, <laughs> regiment is moving where, um, it can get a little bit tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find that to take it off in small pieces, say, uh, gee, what happened at First Manassas? Or, you know, what was the Dred Scott decision about? And why was it decided that way? Uh, I find that um, to really take it in small bites like that, I can tend to remember what this was about much better than uh, some encyclopedic uh, uh, way to look at it. And so hmm. I think it's it's good for the person I'm teaching, but it's also great for the teacher. Uh, <laughs> As a teacher, you know that the person who learns the most from a lesson is the teacher, not the students. Yeah, it's true. You get up there, you have to have uh, a different level of knowledge to convey it in a way that someone else can understand, especially if you're simplifying it. And to simplify it, you have to have a very good grasp on what you're trying to explain. So so you're. it's almost like a, like in lieu of taking notes or something like that for you. Sure. Um, I think Einstein once said that if you can't explain something to a th- on a third grade level, then you don't really understand it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically uh, my view of things like this, is that if, if I can't uh, concentrate down the facts of a battle or of a person's life into a few words, then I myself am missing the point of what is, is being, uh, should be learned there. Right. So um, it's great for me as well as uh, great for the people who read what I write. Mm-hmm. And this coffee cup challenge has become so popular. Now it's becoming a book, correct? That's correct. Yes, uh, tell us a bit about that. So, As you know, as a participant, you know that I have literally dozens of people who check in on this on a daily basis. And some of them are history professors and others are very well-known authors in their own right. And uh, one of them, Eric Wittenberg, who's written over 20 fantastic books on the Civil War, suggested to me that I pull this all together and write a book with it. So um, uh, I thought that was a fascinating idea. I began to do it, and he and I uh, worked together. And uh, the book is called Civil War uh, Challenges, Question and Answers, and it's going to be published by McFarland uh, this spring. And uh, what I did basically is I took together several hundred of the challenges, enhanced them a bit, um, We had new maps drawn for a number of the battles. Uh, It covers uh, not only battles, but personalities. It covers uh, spies and uh, espionage. Mm. Uh, I have a a whole section in there about the medical aspects of uh, the Civil War, which obviously is something very close to me. And... uh, And uh, the entire first section is about uh, the causes of the war. Um, I think it probably isn't perfect for somebody just starting out, but somebody who's had um, an introduction to the Civil War is going to find this to be uh, a fascinating learning tool. And people who are more in the intermediate or advanced range, I hope will find it a good way to uh, learn a few new things and to um, 
read some of the references that I put on in every one of the questions. Is it is it a book that someone can pick up and, and then try like like your coffee cup challenges, try to answer it as they're going through it and then go back and check the answer? Is that kind of the point? It's exactly the point. Um, and you don't have to start with chapter one or chapter two. You could start with chapter seven. Right. Uh, you can do this, whatever is of interest to you. Um, so there's an entire section on Lincoln quotations mm. and where he got them from uh, and and how he enhanced them and made them relevant to what he was talking about. Um, and that's just a standalone area for somebody who's interested. And where did the bulk of this research come from? Do you have particular sources you're using or is it just a vast majority of books you've read? Well, I wish I could turn my computer around because you're not facing my bookshelves. Uh, but my wife is constantly yelling at me to get <laughs> rid of books. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I probably have in here probably 50 or 70 Civil War books amongst my medical books and fiction things and things like that. Um, I have a pretty nice personal library. Um, but I constantly have a turnover because my wife gives me only a certain amount of space to hide my <laughs> books on. And then any new book, I have to get rid of an old one. <laughs> I get that. I need to get a new, my bookshelf is pretty small. Uh, so, so some of my books are, are elsewhere, which they're packed up at this point anyway, because we're moving, like I said, but, uh, I'm looking to expand my civil war book, uh, shelf as well. So, so this is this is interesting because you're teaching others while you're teaching yourself at the same time. And what some of the have you found that like very solidifying the information for you? Is that really what made the huge difference in your studies? Because I'm always fascinated with when I have guests on or read people's posts. How do you remember all this? Like, I feel like sometimes I'll write a blog and it makes sense. And then a day later, it's just it's out. <laughs> The Civil War, like almost any discipline, is totally all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. um, there's no one single aspect of study to it. And I think I was sharing with you before we turned on the camera that one of my interests as a physician and cardiologist has been looking at how doctors make decisions. Um, this has always been interesting to me because when I was in the cath lab and putting in stents or in surgery, um, you have a plan going in and you have to be prepared for things not to go the way you first thought it was going to go. Right. And you have to think quickly. And um, some people do that well and other people don't do that well. Mm -hmm. And um, I rose high enough in the professional ranks that my one of my jobs, both locally as well as nationally, was writing guidelines about how to assess physician decision-making um, and, and how you make good decisions, how you don't make good decisions and how to improve on those decision-making. You know, I have no military background whatsoever. Um, so when I read a civil war book about a battle, I really can't directly connect to any experience of, um, uh, of, uh, of marching or shooting cannon or charging into the face of cannon. I mean, it's fascinating, but I don't have a direct connection to that any more than anybody else. But my connection is to say, why did the generals do that? Mm -hmm. Why did the regimental commanders decide to do that? What were they thinking? If they did the right thing, what did they... What were they responding to? Was it information? Was it intuition? What were they looking at? And when they made bad decisions, the same thing. Why did they make a bad decision? Mm. Um, one of the lessons in the Civil War, like one of the lessons of being a doctor, is that very few people always make the right decision, but there are some people who tend to always make the wrong one. <laughs> um, and that's a really interesting phenomenon um, because you process information as it comes to you and as you see it based upon your experiences. 
That to me is the connection to the Civil War. Why were they doing what they were doing? What did they do right? What did they wrong? And very importantly, why? From there, the rest of it, what it means about being an American in the 22nd century, uh, what it means about uh, uh, um, our current situation politically with regard to race, all of this has obvious uh, implications. Right. So once I started with that connection, then it comes right out into um, what's important. Yeah, so you like to put yourself in their shoes and then also tie it to the modern day. And and it's crazy because, I mean, you know, because we're in the same groups, is that people still want to fight the Civil War. <laughs> like, they still want to argue over it. They still want to fight it, uh, which is crazy. I think people think it's 160 years ago and it's done. And it's not. It's certainly not done. It plays out in everyday politics, in what every politician says, the issues of uh, state sovereignty and nullification, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the, that, you know, uh, voting rights, uh, civil rights, that's very much on the plate of contemporary America. Right. Um, I don't think that anybody can possibly understand today without understanding yesterday. Mm. Um, and so much of what we deal with uh, on an everyday uh, basis when we turn on uh, the six o'clock news uh, has an origin in the Civil War. Right. And I think the the command decision, I want to talk about that a bit too. Um, You have commanders like Grant who, like you said, they seem to make the right decision pretty often. Not always. Um, Same with Lee. But you have commanders like we were talking about before, like McClellan, who just seem not to make the right decision. And I know it's easy to play armchair general and to say, well, you could have done this. You could have done that. So when you're studying these commanders and and trying to to understand, how do you go about it, analyzing what they did? How do you really put yourself in their shoes? Because it's easy to just say, well, I know what happens in this battle. Like, I, I, I know you have a numerical advantage, McClellan, just smash Lee's army. Like, it's separated. But if you're in his position, is it rational to say, based on the information, I think he has more people or not? How do you kind of go about justifying that, if that makes sense? Anybody can make a wrong decision, and really anybody can make a right decision by chance. Mm-hmm. You have to look at McClellan and Grant. And by the way, that's an excellent uh, uh, two people to compare. You you look at them together in, in terms of all their decisions and in terms of their life experience. Now, let's take McClellan versus Grant. McClellan was top of his class at West Point. He was a railroad president. He was considered to be really one of the top coming people of his generation. Um, And then he gets put into a generalship and he's fantastic, isn't he, at administration and training Mm -hmm. and uh, supply. But then he gets into a battle and he consistently makes the wrong decision. And why is that? It's because he's afraid to fail. This is a man who's never failed He's always been a success Mm. and he isn't going to take a chance unless all of the odds are in his favor. Now let's compare. And so that causes him to make bad choices because that's not how war works. War is a gamble. You've got to roll the the dice. Now let's compare that with Grant. Grant was not top of his class at West Point. He was a nobody in the army. Right. He got put out in nowhere, California, and uh, let's face it, became an alcoholic. He had to leave the service. He had to go back to his uh, his farm in Illinois and scrape for uh, every opportunity and kept failing at all of those things. And then in the midst of this failure, the war comes along and they need officers. 
And Grant fortunately knows the congressman from Galena, which is the town that he was living in in Illinois, who pushes him up the ranks. Grant has nothing to lose. He's exactly the right person to be a gambler. Mm -hmm. Because if he fails, he's always failed. He knows what it's like. He's not afraid to fail. Right. That's what you needed. And he would take chances all the time. And he would never give up. His, his insistence on continuing to try in the face of failure is what made him a success. That's what he did at Vicksburg. There's this fascinating chapter uh, in Shelby Foote's uh, trilogy about all of the things Grant did at Vicksburg that failed until he found the one thing that would work. Right. He does about like four different tests of the Yazoo Pass and, and exactly. trying to change the flow of the Mississippi and everything. And why did he succeed? Because he didn't stop trying. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And it makes me think about Lee because Lee is interesting because he has a much easier life than Grant, more McClellan-esque, but he has the, he loves to roll the dice, especially in a situation where you don't really need to roll the dice. You more need to, like Washington, if you look at the, because they see it as a second American revolution. And in the American revolution, Washington's not launching offensives really against the British. He's willing to surrender even Philadelphia, New York, in order to keep his army alive, to keep the war alive. But but Lee is more willing to risk. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, Lee knows he doesn't have the resources. He knows he doesn't have the manpower. He knows his supply chain is very iffy. His advantage if he's going to win, is different from Washington. Washington was willing to trade land for time, knowing that the British didn't have the resources to overcome that. We know the North does have the resources to overcome that. The only way the South was ever going to beat the North was not in a military sense. Mm -hmm. It was only by convincing the population of the North to stop fighting, that the cost of the war was too much for what it is they thought that they were going to get in return. So his idea was to create as many casualties as he could early on to try to convince the North to stop fighting, the North populace. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, if a man like... Uh, Seward or Chase had been elected president instead of Lincoln, it probably would have worked. Right. But Lincoln was elected. Who won the Civil War for the North? Forget about the resources and the supplies and the manpower and all that stuff. Lincoln and Grant won the war. Right. Without Lincoln and Grant, the South would have won. Yeah, if you Lincoln, had a Republican there, they would have just went for peace. They would have just gone. In fact, that's what McClellan wanted to do in 1864 when he ran against uh, Lincoln. Lincoln held it together. Lincoln is the one who articulated what they were fighting about. That's the power and the beauty of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, he's the one that recognized that fighting for union as a theoretical principle was a very important but the way to get the North really on board was to talk about freeing the slaves. Mm -hmm. And that was why the Emancipation Proclamation was not only the right thing to do morally, but the brilliant thing to do politically. Right. Well, and you mentioned Shelby Foote and, and then the um, Ken Burns documentary. He has that quote where he says that the North could have won with their hand tied behind their back. And. It's true in a sense that the North had that industrial power, but it's kind of like what you said. They had the industrial power, but without the right person at the helm of it, it was all for naught because they would have just sued for peace anyway. Look at how long it took even Lincoln to mobilize the North, to get them into the war. Think about how many battles they lost to get to that point. Mm -hmm. they, they, they lost Manassas, both first and second. 
It got destroyed at, uh, you know, the seven days. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, only Grant was winning victories in the West and nobody was paying attention to the West. And, you know, Shiloh was kind of an embarrassment for, for, the, for, the, for the Western Army. Things were not going well uh, for the Union Army until early 1863. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was Lincoln's big uh, like thorn in his side in a biblical sense was that the West, they were winning, but people only cared about the Eastern theater and what Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia was doing. And do you, so I want to ask you this, because we're talking about the Western theater. That's my area of interest. Do you have a specific interest of the war when you're writing these, these coffee cup challenges or when you're studying or do you just kind of go with whatever catches your eye at the moment. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm from New York originally. Uh, absolutely. The Eastern theater started my interest. Uh, I think like uh, most Northeasterners, the Western campaign, the Western theater always struck me as being secondarily. Mm -hmm. And then I read enough to recognize that the war wasn't won in the East. The war was right. won in the West, that Grant learned his trade in the West and then brought it East. And that made me a lot more interested uh, in the Western theater. Um, the other thing I should point out is that my elementary school in Manhattan was the William Tecumseh Sherman school <laughs> which is really really interesting uh and uh, so sherman to me is is always somehow been a hero mm. uh and so that's always been an interesting connection to the western campaign so as i got to learn more about what happened at vicksburg and uh, at chattanooga and atlanta um that's become probably more of an interest to me than than the east has become I relate in a similar way. I think uh, being from Ohio and I've been to Grant's birthplace. I've been to his boyhood home. Like I, there's a lot of connections just down the road. We have Grant street and Sir Sherman street right next to each other. And um, Sherman's Ohio as well. So I think for me, it's a similar thing. It's the Western theater draws my attention because of Grant and what he did. And Sometimes I think Grant's so well-known. He's so studied in the Civil War. I want to study some of the lesser-known characters, but he just always draws my attention because, like you said, the, the North wouldn't have won without him. There's just there's no way around it. They, they didn't have the stomach for it. McClellan, Burnside, Hooker, they just didn't have the stomach that Grant had. I mean, I, I, you being a cardiologist and in the medical field, um, there's a, that's not for everybody that pressure having to have someone's life in your hands. Um, I would imagine. And, and that's what we see with Grant. He was just, he had the stomach for war and not everyone does. It's really terribly unfortunate that Grant's reputation over the years suffered so much. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he was probably the great military strategist of the entire 19th century. He, his, his victories um, it, are at least as incredible as Napoleon's. Mm. Um, his army of the Western theater was probably the greatest army of that time ever assembled. He, he was a magnificent strategist. Um, and Vicksburg is one example. But when he came east and uh, everyone still thinks of him as a butcher because of the overland campaign. But the crossing of the James River was not the work of a butcher. That was the work of somebody whose capability of seeing, looking at a map and seeing what needed to be done was far superior to anybody else's mm -hmm. uh, of his time. Uh, he completely faked Lee out of his boots. And Lee was not the kind of guy you would fake out. Right. Um, uh, these two examples are uh, where Grant um, absolutely changed the course of the war by his by his decisions. He took big chances, and they worked out. Mm -hmm. 
So Lee did as well. I mean, Lee loved to roll the dice. Talk about it's it's interesting to me because Southern people love to call Lee or Grant a bush, butcher, and they love to critique his strategy. But in a sense, he did a lot of what Robert E. Lee did. Robert E. Lee was a big chance taker. Talk about multiple times dividing your army in the face of a superior foe. And he got away with it. But he, he did the same things Grant did. He made a mistake at Gettysburg. He made a frontal assault that was just disastrous. And, I mean, somehow Lee gets forgiven for that. But Grant never gets forgiven for Cold Harbor. And I'm not I'm not sure why that is. Um, I, I bet a lot of it's based on the lost cause, which you know as well as I do is very much still alive. <laughs> well, definitely. Well, Chancellorsville, uh, we talk, I mean, we talk about it as Lee's greatest um, uh, victory. Mm -hmm. Totally uh, outnumbered. Uh, Hooker had uh, gotten, stole a march on him, had appeared in Lee's uh, rear. Um, and Lee, by dividing his forces over and over again, found a way to overcome the odds. Just complete amazement. But you know, when we say things are a gamble, gambling means you don't quite know how it's going to turn out. Right. Lee was a brilliant psychologist. He understood the psyche of the of the general he opposed. He knew Hooker very well. He understood Hooker very well. Hooker was a courageous, brave man. But his theory was completely traditional. Mm -hmm. He was never going to take any chances. And we knew that. So we knew that when confronted with resistance, Hooker would retreat. And he also knew that if it looked like the other guy was losing, Hooker would advance thinking that he had won. Mm -hmm. And we took advantage of both of those traditional concepts of military strategy and turned them on Hooker at Chancellorsville. Right. Yes, he gambled, but he knew by knowing Hooker exactly how it would turn out. Kind of a similar thing with um, McClellan. I mean, talk about somebody who wanted to be deceived. McClellan was begging to be tricked by by Lee. He just, he wanted to believe that Lee's army was bigger than it was. So there, Lee didn't have to do much smoke and mirrors to get him to believe it because he already wanted to. It's like when you hypnotize somebody, you, the people who get hypnotized want to be hypnotized. Uh, like that's why they're able to, because they believe it. And yeah, so, so it's, it's like, it's a gamble, but it, not really, because he kind of has weighted dice. He kind of knows. <laughs> he has weighted dice. Favorite. Exactly right. Yeah. Now, Gettysburg is an interesting thing because, excuse me. Oh, no, go ahead. I get it. <laughs> Gettysburg is a very interesting thing because Lee is there having convinced uh, President Davis not to send Longstreet out west to join Pemberton and Johnson at Vicksburg, but that he was going to invade the north again with the idea that bringing the war to the North would change public opinion in the North. Mm -hmm. So he appears and has fooled first Hooker and for a few days anyway, Meade, they don't know where he's located. Um, and then he exits the mountain uh, that's been covering his advance and suddenly appears in Pennsylvania. Um, he was really rolling the dice. He was saying, instead of sending your men uh, to the West, where they were badly needed, let me have them here, where I'm going to defeat the Union Army and change popular opinion. Mm -hmm. And so now there he is on the plains of Gettysburg with the Union Army in front of him. And what's he going to do? He can't just suddenly run away. This is the opportunity he was looking for. Right. And on day one, he had the better of them. And on day two, he almost had the better of them. Mm -hmm. So now you come to day three. The Union Army is sitting there. And Longstreet 
doesn't want to attack on, on the Confederate right. Ewell doesn't want to attack on the Confederate left. And Lee is there saying, I've got to have a victory. I mean, I'm here because I told President Davis we were going to gamble and we were going to win a victory in order to change opinion. You can't just disappear or else it's a failure. Right. So, so Lee was in this situation where he had to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he chose to do wasn't that crazy. What he chose to do was what Napoleon did. Right. He had attacked on the left. He had attacked on the right. So now he was going to attack in the center. And that's what Pickett's charge was. The thing was, General Meade was an engineer. He was a very precise man, very careful man. He also was trained at West Point, same as Lee. And he knew that was a Napoleonic concept. And so he predicted to General Gibbon the night before that when Lee attacks, it's going to be in your front. Mm-hmm. Meade intuited what uh, what Lee would do, and he intuited correctly and put his forces right there. Right. And and the Union Army's interior lines at Gettysburg were great. The the ability to shift troops around, it's so crucial. I, I was studying um, Chickamauga this morning. I was writing, and Rosecrans' decision to move from the right flank to the left flank to support Thomas left the lot just a gap wide open that Longstreet just takes five brigades through and or divisions, uh, whichever like we're talking about, I forget the details, but the interior lines at Gettysburg were so tight. Even when there were those gaps, they just in the nick of time were able to, were able to close them where it's somewhere like Chickamauga. They don't, they don't get them closed. And I mean, some of that could be blamed on Rosecrans, depending on your view of him. But that's definitely a a big part of the saving grace of the Union Army at Gettysburg as well. One of the things that um, in my book that I really get into dealing with Pickett's charge is the idea that, um, sure, the, the infantry was set up for the attack, but you know what defeated Pickett was the artillery right um the the artillery was set up in a way that you had all these converging lines of artillery attack knowing where the attack was going to be they were prepared for it uh general hunt was the head of artillery and he had cited everything in preparation um this was something that uh had never been done before it was something that Rosecrans hadn't done uh, in his battle. Um, this was really the difference with the artillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, artillery makes I mean, we were talking before about Stones River. That's what your upcoming coffee mm-hmm. cup challenges are going to be about. And even at a battle like Stones River on that last day when the Confederates take that hill on the uh, right side of the battlefield, some kind of picture in my mind, the artillery across the Stones River makes the position untenable and as an infantry unit you don't stand much of a chance with with artillery fire coming at you You don't want to be cannon fodder and yeah the confederate bombardment a lot of those shells go over their head it's interesting i was reading uh i think i have it behind me which i know the listeners can't see but uh the final fury by bruce catton on gettysburg and Meade's headquarters are getting bombarded, but not the front line of Hancock's Corps. And the battle could have gone a lot differently if if that shot had been lower and actually hit those Union lines where they were supposed to. So I uh, have an entire challenge in the book on the subject um, that I won't spoil for you, but I will tell you that um, the concept of um, artillery at that time was to fire over the head of the line that you're attacking Mm -hmm. so that when the pieces of the bomb would explode, it would fall onto the line below. Mm -hmm. You weren't shooting directly at them unless they were an attack formation. 
you were firing over their head. But something really happened very interestingly several months before to the Confederate art fuse factory in Richmond. Uh, there was an explosion. And so the fuses that they had to use at Gettysburg was a different fuse type. Mm. And nobody had actually ever told the Confederate artillery that there was a difference. So the fuses that they, the Confederates used at Gettysburg took one second longer to, for the bomb to explode than what they had prepped for. Mm. So the reason why all those bombs went behind the lines wasn't a mistake. It was the fact that they had lined and sighted things up the way they thought that it was supposed to go. And they didn't realize that there was one second longer for the fuses to go off. That's fascinating. I've, I've never heard that. It's fascinating, but true. You Do you tend to, with these coffee cup challenges, pull out things that I've never heard of, which is why I'm, I, <laughs> yeah, we were talking before uh, about Chattanooga and in all the books that I have, I was looking through when you put the coffee cup challenge about the retreat and the battle that took place. And I'm flipping through my books, trying to come up with a battle name and I, I can't find them, <laughs> <laughs> which is good and bad, which is a, which is a reason for listeners to pick up the book when it comes out, uh, because I guarantee you, you will learn a lot. I hope so. And I hope that people find it educational. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it can be un understood and enjoyed on, on multiple levels. And uh, I enjoyed preparing it. In your level of Civil War study, how do you find such? Is that kind of what you look for? Are you looking for the, the untold? Are you looking for the parts of the war that get overlooked? Are you kind of looking for those stories? To a certain extent, I am. I'm looking for a different angle to tell the story. Mm. Um, if you really want to read the story of the Civil War, I, I am no Shelby Foote uh, and nobody else is either. Uh, if anybody wants a basic understanding of the war, go buy Shelby Foote's book. They're fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I can't possibly compete with that. But what I can do is I can tell the stories that aren't the center of the war, that Im impact the way the war played out. Um, so that's that's my interest. So that, for example, I had a uh, an article in uh, Gettysburg Magazine this past summer mm -hmm. on Robert E. Lee's heart attack, obviously something that uh, I know something about heart attacks uh, and how it may or may not have impacted his decision-making at Gettysburg. Um, so this is the kind of question that people say, why did we make bad decisions at Gettysburg? Was it his health? Well, no, it wasn't, but it's a good question. Right. And it's an important question to ask. It's interesting because it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is why are they making these decisions? Is it these external stimuli, stimuli that are impacting them or is it they just made a bad decision that day? Or if you're McClellan every day, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it is it is interesting. And, and it's it's like Grant. You have these lived experiences in your life that impact you on the battlefield for better or worse. And in Grant's case, it's for better. But it's those untold stories that get looked over that lead them up to that point in making that decision. And to me, that's the fun of it. To me, that's what um, that's what I find of great interest. These, you know, I think everybody should know what happened, but trying to understand why, to me, is what uh, invigorates me. And it makes sense. I mean, with as many books as are written on the Civil War, there, like you said, it, it's been done if you're going to just look at it like a simple battle narrative. I mean, you have McPherson, Cadden, Foote, like you have all these great authors who've written on it. But finding that new perspective is kind of what keeps the interest alive and keeps those new books coming out. I mean, 
we don't need another detailed strategic movement at Gettysburg or, or something like that. But but why those decisions were made at Gettysburg is fa- it's it's really what keeps it alive. I think it's a great perspective. I'm very excited for the book. <laughs> Good. Uh, I'm I'm sh- I'm sure I will learn quite a bit about it. And, and uh, Eric's a great great author as well. Uh, I'll put a little plug in there. I think it's March of next year. He'll be a speaker for our roundtable, which we just started. So if listeners want to hear him speak, uh, he'll be joining us. Do you try to theme thematically do these coffee cup challenges or is it just, I know we, we kind of talked about this, but uh, do you plan it out at all? Kind of if it's around when Fredericksburg happened or Stones River? I do somewhat. Um, this started with uh, Gettysburg where I would start doing several weeks of Gettysburg challenges. I would save them throughout the year. Um, and I have some saved up for this June too and start to put them out in June leading up to Gettysburg. Last year, I did that for Chancellorsville, which I thought was uh, very, very well received. And I am doing it for Stones River, uh, as you mentioned. Um, uh, So it has been one thing that I've looked at, one way of making it come alive. You've probably noticed that some weeks I do a theme thing and other weeks it's just kind of five different sort of trivia things. Right. Um, It's just kind of whatever uh, I sit down in front of the computer and I go, well, what should I write about? And I do have a list of ideas that I I haven't done yet. And uh, I might start on that. And then my reading will take me in a different direction and I'll go, Oh, that's really interesting. Let me do that one. Mm. And you may or may not have an answer to this, but I'm curious, what do you think your most well-received challenge has been? (laughs) Um, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I uh, would like to think, uh, that it was uh, the th- several weeks of Gettysburg. Mm. I did do a several week project on uh, Civil War supply and the blockade and the Fraser Trenholm Company that I had that I really loved doing, and I'm thinking about writing a book on that subject. Mm. Um, I think those are probably um, the two that I've gotten the most positive feedback on. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, as much as well-versed Civil War buffs like to act like Gettysburg's too mainstream to engage with, it is. People love Gettysburg. I mean, you mentioned going there is kind of what jump-started your interest, and it was the same for me because being uh, in like the eastern, northeastern part of the United States, that's where I went as a kid. We would go there on, on trips as Gettysburg, and it holds a very special place in American history and public opinion, even if I I feel like there's a very, very valid case made that it's not the turning point of the Civil War. And, you know, you look at Vicksburg, the Overland campaign, I would probably say it's the Overland campaign, but it still holds that special spot and it'll never be replaced, I don't think. What what really works for me is that it... um... It, it brings home the point that the soldiers who were out in the field were fighting for their vision of what they thought America should become, and they were willing to lay down their lives for it. Right. Um, that That's an amazing recognition uh, that tens of thousands of people were wounded or had, were casualties, and they knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't just out there and suddenly found themselves in the middle of the battle, right. they were there to fight for their vision. Mm-hmm. That's that uh, is something that uh, America in 2022 could really learn using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Well, is there uh, when can listeners expect this uh, book to be out? It uh, it should be out in April. You can pre-order it on Amazon or directly from the publisher. Um, and uh, 
I think people will love it. It's it's profusely illustrated as, with uh, photographs. I think I mentioned that we've had maps, battle maps drawn just mm -hmm. for this, um, including an artillery map of Gettysburg so that you can see what I was thinking about with that. And uh, I think, I, I hope that people will find it enjoyable. I'm sure they will. I will make sure to put a link to it in the description so that listeners can go right to Amazon and purchase it. And is there a way that listeners can contact you or support you or your coffee cup challenges if they're interested? Um, I'm uh, doing the coffee cup challenges now on a Facebook site called Never Call Retreat, one of Catton's uh, books. Uh, it's also on another site called Civil War Truth. You're invited to join. You're invited to uh, participate. Send me a note on one of those, and I'd, I'd be happy to respond. I've met um, a number of people who, with interest, and we've taken our friendship uh, off of Facebook and message each other, and I've met a great deal, a great variety of interesting people that way with great interest in the Civil War. Yeah, that's one of the things I love the most about the podcast is all the people I meet and uh, the relationships you build. It's it's interesting because uh, you find this similar passion and interest and it can bring people together who have completely different walks of life and completely different views. And it's it is fascinating. It's it really enriches life. Uh, something that happened, a horrible thing that happened, you know, two, 160 years ago. And uh, it's very interesting. Well, Thank you. Uh, it's been a great discussion. I look forward to your book and I encourage listeners to pick it up as well. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, subscribe, leave a review because it helps us grow. We also appreciate any donations because there are costs incurred with running the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we would love to see you next week. As always, thanks for joining us.